The time is now. Volume 7, Episode 130. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. I am always so amazed uh, and so appreciative every time I got a government official willing to join this podcast and answer some questions provide some great insight and information to all of you listeners. And over the last few years, I have been really fortunate to get the current commissioners of the federal EEOC to join me, uh, including Commissioner Keith Sonderling, Commissioner Andrea Lucas. Today, I am honored to have another current EEOC commissioner join me, uh, and that is the current vice chair of the commission, Jocelyn Samuels. Uh, vice Chair Samuels joined the EEOC as a commissioner back on October 14th, 2020. Uh, she was designated by President Biden to serve as the vice chair of the commission on January 20, 2021. And shortly after that, on July 14, 2021, she was confirmed for a second term that will end in three years in 2026. Immediately before joining the EEOC, Vice Chair Samuels was the Executive Director at the Williams Institute at the UCLA School of Law. Going back a little further, in the Obama administration, she served as the Acting Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Justice. And I could go on in this entire episode just talking about uh, Vice Chair Samuels' impressive career. But at this point, let me introduce Vice Chair Jocelyn Samuels of the EEOC because I've got lots of topics I want to get into. Vice Chair Samuels, I can't tell you how honored I am to have you here. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, no, of course. And, you know, as you know, we have had uh, Commissioner Sonderling and Commissioner Lucas uh, on the podcast as well. So uh, really thrilled to to add you to that, too. I know they've, they've gotten a little competitive with how often they're showing up on the podcast, um, but I really appreciate all of it. I am so glad to finally be getting my turn. <laughs> well, happy to have you here and sorry that it took this long. Um, there's so many questions, so many topics that I really uh, am looking forward to get your opinion on. Um, but I did want to start from a general standpoint and maybe from, a, I guess, a personal standpoint. Um, you give so much and have given so much to public service. What drove you to, to want to do so and, and be a part of an agency like the EEOC? Well, I, thanks so much for that question. You know, it is such a privilege to be at the EEOC and to have been able over the course of my career to work in both the government arena and in the nonprofit sector. I, you know, I grew up in the 60s. I had a deep-rooted commitment to civil rights in particular. And I think the ability to give back and to use some of the extraordinary privileges that I've been given, legal training and uh, an understanding of the way in which policy frames and influences the opportunities and the choices that people have. Um, I just feel really lucky to be able to be doing this work. I also think specifically with regard to employment discrimination that um, the ability to hold a job and support oneself and one's family 
and realize the potential that people bring to the table is such a core element of self-sufficiency and ultimately the ability to be a full participant in our democracy. So being at the EEOC, I think, is a uh, a core way to ensure that equality of opportunity in this critical setting moves forward. That's so nice. I mean, it's a great story. And, and and obviously, it's one thing to have those kinds of values and ideals. It's another thing to be able to have that translated into the work that you're able to do, which is uh, it's so nice to hear you've been able to do that. I, I feel extremely fortunate. So where are we in terms of the EEOC? Where are we with the current composition of the commission and uh, the, the opening and the general counsel role? So uh, you, as I'm sure your listeners know, the EEOC is a bipartisan entity by design. At its full complement, it has five commissioners, no more than three of whom can be members of a single political party. Right now, we have only four commissioners. We are split two Republicans, two Democrats. We are awaiting confirmation of our fifth commission nominee, Kalpana Kodigal, who is currently a civil rights attorney in private practice and who's been voted out of committee. Her nomination is currently awaiting action on the Senate floor. We also have a general counsel nominee, Carla Gilbride, who is currently an attorney at an organization called Public Justice. Her nomination is also pending on the Senate floor. And I think, uh, you know, obviously no one at the EEOC is in charge of timing, but I do hope that we will see action on both nominations in the very near future. I'm sure uh, having two Democrats and two Republicans, I'm sure that makes things very easy and smooth, of course. (laughs) You know, I do think that bipartisan work is sort of the gold standard of getting things done. And I find that my own decision-making is almost always better informed and more thoughtful when I understand the range of views and equities that a particular policy initiative or regulatory effort or litigation will affect. And so I really do value the fact, excuse me, that the EEOC is bipartisan by design. I do think that when you have an EEOC that operates at full strength, you can get more done on behalf of the American people. And so I really do hope that our nominees will be joining us very shortly. That's great. And and I do like to ask this question whenever government officials come on the podcast, and, and you led into that really well. And I, so I'd love your perspective on this as well, because it's not just a matter of getting things done and being productive. And to your point, um, being able to benefit from differing views, there is a public perception aspect to the work of government agencies like the EEOC. Um, no question about that. So when it comes to public perception, um, Democrat, Republican, um, you know, how important is public perception of the EEOC? Let me ask it that way, whether it's the perception of employers or employees How important is that to the EEOC? You know, I I guess I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy to say that the EEOC is either pro-employee or pro-employer or more of a plaintiff's or a management side entity. I think I can speak on behalf of all of my colleagues in saying We're pro-compliance with the EEO laws, and we have multiple tools available to promote that goal. So we do enormous amounts of education, outreach, and technical assistance at the front end because it is almost always better to get out in front of problems before they amount 
to discrimination that needs to be fixed at the back end. And so in that connection, I'd say, you know, people should go to our website where we have a huge amount of material about how to comply with the requirements of the law. We also, all of us, do substantial outreach and speaking, and being able to appear on this podcast is is one part of that strategy, to be able to educate people about their rights and their responsibilities. And that doesn't mean that litigation isn't an appropriate and valuable tool, and I do think that it plays a significant role in holding employers who don't voluntarily comply with the role, the rules accountable. But I think that the idea that we are a democratic or a Republican entity obscures the fact that my colleagues and I, the staff at the EEOC, and our stakeholders generally, I think, are committed to promoting compliance with the law. And we want to do that in the most effective and impactful way possible. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a great way of explaining that. Um, and, you know, part of what I hear as well from clients, and, and again, I don't mean to suggest that this is unique to the EEOC. We talk about this, whether it's the NLRB or whether it's the Department of Labor, um, really any federal agency, department or board. There's this politically driven uh, concern that people have, um, that there's a per- perception that the rules governing Corporate behavior, for example, uh, will often change as the political administrations in Washington change. And because of that, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, it's hard to conform behavior to the interpretation of rules if the rules are perceived to be changing based on the, the administration that happens to be in office. Do you have a thought on that or a response to that perception? Yeah, I, look, I I think that... Uh employees and employers are entitled to stability and consistency in the way that administrative agencies do their work. Do different administrations have different policy priorities? Absolutely. Do we need to be responsible in providing adequate notice and understanding of the standards that we are planning to apply absolutely on that count as well. And that's why I think that the wealth of materials that we have with regard to guidance or regulations or federal sector adjudicatory decisions that educate people about the way in which we interpret the law is so important. And that's why public input on the work that we do is so critical. So, for example, um, we solicited uh, really robust public input on our proposed strategic plan and strategic enforcement plan both of which were published for public comment in the winter, and both of which generated very helpful input from our stakeholders that we are now considering. But our strategic plan and our strategic enforcement plan are intended to set an overall framework for achieving our mission, and for identifying the substantive priorities and strategies that we will use to pursue our goals. And I think putting those out for public review and comment was really intended as a mechanism to educate our stakeholders about the way in which we think about doing our work over the course of the next five years and to get their reactions to it. Because, again, a well-informed group of stakeholders is, I think, a critical component of ensuring that we promote compliance with the laws in a way that is both effective and fair. And so 
I think that we are um, all united behind trying to ensure that employees and employers understand their rights and responsibilities and that we solicit the input that we need in order to most effectively do our job as an enforcement agency. I'm obviously speaking with uh, Vice Chair Jocelyn Samuels of the EEOC. I've always wanted to say that I, I, I sort of act like this is a TV show that people just jump into or in the middle of it. I, I don't know anybody who would just come in the middle of the podcast and not know who I'm talking with. But I've always wanted to to say that we are talking with Vice Chair Jocelyn Samuels. Um, and I, I really appreciate uh, that answer. And there's there's a lot of transparency uh, in that answer in terms of uh, you and the other commissioners really wanting to have public input and for the public to know what the process is and what you're thinking about doing as a commission. Absolutely. And I will say, I, I've said this before, but um, I, the only person who is required to call me vice chair is my husband. And he <laughs> very rarely agrees to do so. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, I'm going to hopefully I'll get him on the podcast one of these times. I'll ask him that question too. Um, so, uh, before we get into uh, a few specific points and and um, uh, subject matters, you you raised the issue about the uh, the current strategic plan and the strategic enforcement plan. What should our listeners know generally from a thirty thousand foot standpoint about this uh, this commission's current strategic plan and strategic enforcement plan? Yeah, so, uh, you know, these are important documents that, as I said, really uh, set the parameters for the commission's priorities and strategies for achieving its mission. The SEP, the Strategic Enforcement Plan, is really intended to be a living document and to reflect the evolving realities of the workplace, both nationally and in communities that are covered by our field offices. It's not the exclusive list of issues that we'll focus on, but it really is intended to assist our staff in prioritization of enforcement and outreach resources and educate the public about where we think we can best add value in promoting compliance with the EEO laws. Um, you know, much of what is in our proposed strategic enforcement plan for the next five years will be familiar from our 2017 through 2022 SEP. Um, for example, focusing on vulnerable populations and recruitment and hiring and harassment and systemic enforcement. I'd say a few of the changes that people might have seen in the proposed new plan is recognizing the increasing use of artificial intelligence, refining the recruitment and hiring priority to include on-the-job training and pre-apprenticeship programs, updating emerging and developing issues to include discrimination based on the COVID-19 pandemic and other threats to public health, violations of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and technology-related employment discrimination, um, and expanding the vulnerable and underserved worker priority to include additional categories of workers like people with intellectual disabilities, people with arrest and conviction records, LGBTQ, LGBTQI plus workers, temporary workers, workers with limited literacy or English proficiency. So uh, all of those are embedded in the draft that was put out for public comment. I am hopeful that both the strategic plan and the strategic enforcement plan will be approved in the coming months. Both are subject to a commission vote, and I do anticipate that we will be holding one in the not too distant future. That's great. So let's let's get into uh, some of the specific topics uh, that you mentioned. Um, and I know you you feel uh, so strongly about so many of these. 
Uh, I want to talk about religious discrimination and accommodation because that continues to be a, a hot topic. We are now obviously awaiting a significant ruling from the Supreme Court. Uh, for those keeping score at home, the case is Groff versus DeJoy. Um, if the Supreme Court reverses the Third Circuit and the District Court, it would make it much more difficult for employers by equating the undue hardship burden in religious accommodation cases with that applied in disability accommodation cases where an employer must show more than just a de minimis kind of burden. Um, I know we're, you, we're not putting the Supreme Court robe on you just yet, but do you have any thoughts on where the Supreme Court might end up when we get a decision likely in June on this? Yeah, it, you know, this, as, as you note, this is, uh, I think, a really important case about the standards that should apply on what employers need to show in order to demonstrate undue hardship that would excuse them from providing religious accommodations under Title VII. Um, the Groff case asks whether the current standard for undue hardship, which was set more than 40 years ago in a case called Hardison, should be jettisoned in favor of the ADA standard, which requires that employers show significant difficulty or expense in order to avoid the obligation to make disability-related accommodations. You know, uh, this is, Groff is a case that was brought against the Postal Service. And so the government is the defendant in this case, and the Solicitor General is representing the government before the Supreme Court. And her argument in that case is that properly understood, the Hardison standard provides substantial protection for religious belief, and that its use of the term de minimis should not be taken outside the context of the facts of that case. So the government has said that Partisan should not be overruled, and in fact, there is nothing in the case that meets the standard for overturning a statutory interpretation precedent, but should instead be clarified to make clear that the burden on employers to avoid making religious accommodations is not just hardship, but undue hardship, which means that the employer cannot rely on speculation or sort of assumptions about the ways in which a requested religious accommodation will interfere with its work, but will have to show actual facts that demonstrate that there is an undue hardship, and it is the employer's burden to prove that. And I think what was interesting and perhaps somewhat surprising to me about the argument was how much the justices seemed to be seeking a consensus result here. And so Justice Gorsuch, for example, uh, went through a number of principles on which he said to the Solicitor General, now, you agree with the petitioner's counsel in this case, right? And the answer was yes. So I think that it's conceivable that what we will see out of this case is not an overturning of the Hardison standard in favor of uh, imposition of the ADA significant difficulty or expense standard, but instead a more nuanced treatment, which makes clear that de minimis should not be read out of context, and that the requirement that an employer show undue hardship really does have some teeth in it. I will say, though, that one of the things that was heartening to me, and of course I'm speaking for myself and not for the commission as a whole, but one of the things that was heartening to me 
was that the justices really did, for the most part, seem to recognize that the impact on third parties, whether it is co-workers or customers, is an important consideration in evaluating whether an employer has shown undue hardship. That whereas Mr. Groff seemed to be suggesting in his briefs that the only thing that an employer should consider is the impact on the bottom line of the business, what many of the justices and the Solicitor General seem to recognize is that an employer's employees are its business and a negative effect on the employee's ability to do their work by disrupting the way in which they do it or imposing a significant burden on them or creating a an environment that could be a hostile environment for coworkers are all relevant considerations in evaluating whether the employer has met its burden to show undue hardship. Yeah, it's not just about the individual plaintiff uh, or just about financial considerations. Uh, there's a much broader analysis to be had, potentially. I, that I, That was the Solicitor General's position. That is my position, and I hope that it is also the position that the Supreme Court will take. Well, so we're probably uh, a month or so, a little over a month uh, from getting uh, that decision, which will certainly have a significant impact on uh, religious discrimination, religious accommodation cases moving forward. Um, as we're talking about religious accommodation requests, we've obviously seen, I think, a significant uptick in accommodation requests by employees, particularly in the past two or three years coming out of the pandemic and the vaccine-related requirements that uh, we've all been talking about for uh, what seems like an endless period of time. The commission, of course, uh, updated uh, your technical assistance in October 2021 to specifically address religious discrimination and accommodation in the context of the pandemic. Are you still seeing that same wave of religious accommodation charges at the EEOC and um, what is the best takeaway for employers in the area of accommodating religious beliefs? So, I, I, you know, it's it's interesting. You are right that uh, whereas religious accommodation charges in the past had been limited in number and focused mostly on scheduling changes or dress and grooming modifications that people were seeing during the pandemic, the uh, number and uh, percentage of charges that related to requests for religiously grounded exemptions from vaccination requirements substantially increased. Um, you know, we don't actually, we haven't compiled or released our uh updated charge data, but certainly in fiscal year 2022, which ended last September, we saw just a huge increase in the number of religiously grounded accommodation charges related to vaccination requirements. And as you note, the EEOC issued uh, a component of our what you should know technical assistance about the pandemic that focused specifically on requests for religiously grounded exemptions from COVID-related requirements, vaccination requirements, etc. Um, in that, the commission made clear that in general, employers should not question the sincerity or the religious nature of an asserted belief that underlies a request for a religious accommodation. That said, the commission also made clear that if an employer has an objective basis 
to question sincerity or the religious nature of a belief, the employer can make a limited inquiry to be able to assure itself that, in fact, the person requesting the accommodation has a sincerely held religious belief. That kind of uh, objective basis can be demonstrated based on considerations of, for example, whether the accommodation that a person is requesting is one that is a desirable benefit that people have been requesting for non-religious reasons, whether the uh, individual has previously uh, accepted adherence to a policy like a vaccination policy without uh, objection, whether there are other reasons to think that the person is not being sincere. But I, I caution employers to be very careful in this area because there are plenty of precedents that say that just because a person doesn't adhere to all of the beliefs endorsed by a religion, just because there isn't an established religion that endorses this particular belief, or just because a person's beliefs have changed over time, does not in and of itself give the employer a basis for asserting that a religious belief is not sincerely held. And so I think each case depends on its facts, but an employer should move with caution in questioning whether someone has in fact demonstrated a sincere religious belief that justifies the request for an accommodation. And that was almost easier to heed that uh, cautionary tale before the pandemic, when again, I think you, you're talking about a much more limited number of religious accommodation requests. Now bring in the pandemic in the middle of the pandemic and to some extent post pandemic, just exponentially uh, the number of accommodation requests on religious bases uh, increased. And when you're talking about larger companies, you could be talking hundreds, if not thousands of religious accommodations requests coming in. And in many cases, and we all read the same stories and saw them in the news uh, where employees were sort of, um, you know, making uh, mimicking some of the requests that their colleagues were making or things that they read about. And maybe they're making perhaps factually inaccurate representations about vaccines or about something else. And it just made it so much more difficult because those within the organizations uh, who are making decisions about these requests uh, are not religious um, leaders. Uh, and, and it was just difficult to try to comply with the law while getting these these mass requests from employees. No, I, I, I recognize uh, that uh, just the administrative burden increased dramatically during the pandemic. I, I would say a couple of things. The first is that, um, you know, an employer is authorized in evaluating undue hardship to take into account the number of requests that it has gotten for accommodations. The employer can't speculate and say, oh my God, this will open a floodgate without any kind of evidence of that. But it is absolutely appropriate for an employer to say, I need a critical mass of people who have been vaccinated to have patient contact and 80% of my workforce has already opted out. And so that is a relevant consideration to evaluating undue hardship in any particular case. The other thing is I do think that public health considerations play in to evaluating when there is uh, a, a case to be made that excusing people from a vaccination requirement will pose an undue hardship. And things like 
the level of contact that people have with their coworkers or with clients or customers, the extent to which the person's job can be done either remotely or in an isolated area, the ways in which the consequences of uh, a person exposing a coworker or a customer to potentially, uh, you know, virus-related health consequences. Those are all relevant considerations in evaluating <clears throat> undue hardship for granting a request to be exempted from a vaccination requirement. And of course, as you point out now, um, I don't know that there are very many employers who are still imposing vaccination requirements in the workplace. So it may be that this uptick in accommodation requests will be reduced over time as we hopefully get back to something approaching normal post-pandemic. That's a great point. Uh, and so speaking of equating or potentially equating religious accommodation standards now with ADA disability standards, um, I think we're seeing a move in the same direction when it comes to pregnancy-related uh, issues. Right before the new year last year, President Biden signed a couple of pieces of legislation into law on the same day, uh, the PUMP Act, uh, providing urgent maternal protections for nursing mothers act. It's a lot easier to refer to it as the pump act, um, which went into effect this past Friday, uh, April 28th, I believe, and imposed certain break time and other accommodations when it came to workplace locations to express uh, breast milk. That same day brought us the federal pregnant workers fairness act, which will become effective this coming June 27th, 2023. The latter uh, of those two is one that is enforced by the EEOC. So I'm interested in, in hearing where the EEOC currently is in terms of regulations, perhaps first a proposed set of regulations for public comment, and what should employers be thinking about now in terms of preparing for the June 27th effective date? Well, uh, thanks for that question. And I have to say the enactment of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was so exciting and was such a unicorn in Washington because it was, believe it or not, a bipartisan bill that generated support from both sides of the aisle and also garnered support from stakeholders from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to civil rights advocates. And I think that the reason for that is the recognition that the bill is really a win-win for both employers and employees. What it requires is that employers who are covered by Title VII and other civil rights laws provide reasonable accommodation for the known limitations arising from related to, or I've forgotten the precise language, but basically that relate to pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions up to the limit of undue hardship. This, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act really fills gaps in the law because up until its enactment, under Title VII, pregnant workers could get accommodations, but only if they could identify others in the workplace who were getting similar accommodations. Comparator situations. They could get comparators, exactly. They could get accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but only if they could demonstrate that their pregnancies had resulted in what would be characterized as disabilities under the ADA, which normal pregnancy, and I use normal in quotes, yes. did not create. And so there were thousands of workers affected by pregnancy, childbirth, 
or related medical conditions who were falling between the cracks and were not entitled to accommodations at all. That meant that those workers were forced to choose between staying on the job and earning a paycheck and maintaining healthy pregnancies. And employers were forced to suffer the costs of uh, employee turnover for workers who could not get the often really simple and straightforward accommodations that they needed in order to stay on the job. So many of these accommodations are so straightforward, allowing pregnant workers to carry water bottles, giving them breaks to go to the bathroom, providing stools for people who typically have to stand or the opportunity to stand up for workers who have to sit, allowing people to eat at their workstations, even if they wouldn't normally be able to. These kinds of accommodations, I think, are ones that are geared to ensuring that pregnant workers can stay on the job, the employer can continue to benefit from the work that they provide, and everybody wins. So we are working assiduously on proposed regulations. I do hope that we will be able to release a proposed set of regulations in the near future, and the public will have substantial opportunity to comment on these and to provide input about any kinds of issues that they are confronting on the ground or that they think the EEOC ought to address. In the interim, we have lots of material on our website about the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. I encourage employers to consult the website and also ensure that before June 27th, which is the date that the law becomes effective, they review their policies and procedures to make sure that they are communicating to their HR folks and anybody who will be responding to accommodation requests that this is now going to be a requirement of the law and that when a worker comes forward to say, that she needs an accommodation as the result of pregnancy, childbirth, or a related medical condition, they should not be engaging in questions about, well, do we have to do this? And is this person entitled to it? And what's the scope of the obligation? In fact, I'd say in some ways, the PWFA makes employers' lives easier because it means you just skip straight to the second step, not whether the person is entitled to an accommodation, but what should that accommodation be and what kinds of supports and modifications can be provided without incurring undue hardship. What's interesting about it is when you distinguish it from the other types of accommodation issues, you know, when you said a moment ago, it's sort of win-win and almost easier for employers uh, you're not dealing like you do with the religious accommodations. You're not dealing with a sincerity <laughs> uh, issue more often than not when you when you have a pregnant worker. Uh, and on the disability side, one of the biggest challenges, I think, for employers is the time constraint. How long do we need to have this accommodation last? Is this a disability that is going to be forever? Is this going to be years Obviously, in the in the pregnancy situation, again, putting aside if there is a medical condition or some condition that, you know, lasts or results from the pregnancy, that's a different issue. But the pregnancy itself is obviously more limited in time. So a lot of the challenges that we find in the religious accommodation or the disability accommodation, you don't necessarily have those challenges when it comes to the pregnancy accommodation. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm glad you raised that, Mike, because it does raise one way in which the obligations of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act differ from the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that is that under the ADA, the individual seeking an accommodation has to demonstrate that they are qualified 
to do the job, which is to say that they can perform the essential functions of the job with or without accommodation. There is a very specific provision under the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act that says that an individual, a pregnant worker, can be qualified even if she can't perform some of the essential functions of the position, as long as the inability to perform is temporary, the function will be able to be performed in the near future, and the inability to perform can be reasonably accommodated. So whereas under the ADA, a worker has to be qualified in order to seek an accommodation, under the PWFA, one of the accommodations can be waiving some of the functions that would otherwise be necessary for a worker to be qualified because there's a recognition that pregnancy is by definition a temporary condition that will be over after in the neighborhood of nine months or so. That's a critical distinction as well. I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. We'll, we'll look forward to, um, further guidance from the EEOC when those regulations come out. Um, really significant issue. I, I want to switch gears a bit. There's a couple of other topics that I do want to make sure uh, I get to. Uh, again, so appreciative of your time. So much attention these days, and rightfully so, is on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we are also waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court in a case argued, I believe, last October about whether race can be affirmatively considered as part of a college admissions program. Uh, the decision is not necessarily a labor and employment uh, issue, but the decision will have far reaching impacts, uh, much like Justice uh, O'Connor's decision a quarter century ago, I think, did. How can employers maintain effective DEI initiatives to try to create inclusive workplaces while then also avoiding legal challenge under Title VII? And, and that probably is not a great question for a two-minute answer, um, but, uh, you know, let's at least start the discussion there. Yeah, no, and, and you know, I think there will be much more discussion to be had when the decisions come down. I do too. Um, I, I, I'd point out a couple things. First, as you noted, the cases pending before the Supreme Court involve race-conscious admissions decisions in higher education. They are not employment cases. In addition, they are brought under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and under the Constitution, not under Title VII. And they relate to educational institutions' use of diversity as a rationale, not to the kind of remedial rationales for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that have typically propelled employers in this space. You know, we are going to have to evaluate the impact of the decision and look at its implications for employment. But I will say, speaking for myself, I am really committed to helping employers to maintain their DEI initiatives to the maximum extent consistent with the law. And I do hope and expect that there are going to continue to be numerous steps that employers can permissibly take, particularly if those steps don't result in discrimination on a prohibited basis in an individual employment decision. I'd refer people to our YouTube channel to listen to various listening sessions that we've held under something we call our hire initiative, our hiring initiative to reimagine equity, because those listening sessions have identified some really promising practices that don't take race into account, that I think nonetheless can really help to mean, to create uh, inclusive workforces and eliminate artificial barriers, whether it is 
targeted recruitment or data collection and analysis or looking at skills-based hiring and removing qualifications that are simply not necessary to do the job or rethinking notions of who is qualified. For example, not excluding people from consideration just because they have gaps in their resumes. I think that there is going to be a wealth of actions that employers will still be able to take and that I would encourage them to take to the maximum extent consistent with the law in order to really ensure that they are eliminating barriers and promoting true equality of opportunity in their workplaces. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great suggestion. Uh, folks should feel free to um, take a listen to the YouTube sessions, uh, and we can certainly have more of a dialogue on this issue, which is such an important one. Um, once we see what the Supreme Court does, again, uh, not in the labor and employment context per se, but will have far-reaching impacts, I think, in the labor and employment arena. Um, I, I feel compelled now with every podcast episode I do that I can't really go 30 or 45 minutes without mentioning COVID-19 anymore. So um, with that said, here is today's COVID-19 segment. I, I feel like I should have some music or some unique music uh, for that segment. <laughs> but so here is today's COVID-19 segment. Uh, is the commission still seeing charges or investigating companies on issues relating to long COVID or otherwise involving COVID-specific disability issues? Uh, are we seeing sort of the bell go the other way and there's now a downshift or are we still dealing with that uh, on the commission? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I have to say, I do hope that at some point you will be able to abandon these COVID <laughs> segments. It would be wonderful for public health if that were the case. I agree. Um, look, you know, we're we're continuing to see issues related to COVID uh, percolate through our work, whether it is with regard to return to work accommodations or the symptoms of long COVID. Um, I think people should continue to consult our what you should know technical assistance, which we update on a regular basis to ensure that they understand what the changing nature of the pandemic means in terms of workplace rules. Uh, just a couple of quick takeaways. First of all, employers should always follow CDC guidance. And that is something that I think, you know, they should be continuously consulting as the nature of the pandemic changes. Employers can still ask employees and visitors if they have COVID, if they have symptoms of COVID, or if they have tested for COVID. They can also screen those who come into the workplace for COVID. But medical exams, things like temperature checks, now have to meet the job-related and consistent with business necessity standards. We've changed that now. We, it used to be a little bit more accommodating, for lack of a better term. When we were in the middle of the pandemic, we've sort of gone back now to what the ADA used to require before. That's COVID. right. That's right. And whereas there was more authorization for employers to do things across the board at the height of the pandemic. Now employers need to be making the kinds of individualized inquiries that they were doing under the ADA pre-pandemic to ensure that the questions they're asking, the exams that they're administering meet the requirements of the law. They also should bear in mind that the confidentiality requirements of the ADA remain in place and any medical information that they do get should be maintained separate and apart from employment information more generally. But I would say, you know, as we know, the public health emergency will be ending next week, that doesn't change ADA standards. Those are still the guideposts for ensuring compliance with the law in this context. And so the last substantive topic I, I wanted to make sure I got to today is, is retaliation. Uh, still many people uh, consider retaliation as sort of the little sibling 
claim to harassment and discrimination claims, but we, we see the statistics every year. I mean, retaliation, the number of retaliation charges uh, continues to be up there, if not the number one uh, charge filed with the EEOC. Um, I know the EEOC has partnered with the Department of Labor and the NLRB to address retaliation issues. What, what can you tell us about uh, the commission's work with these other agencies and what should employers be thinking about in this area of retaliation that maybe they haven't been thinking about before? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. I, you know, retaliation is the most frequently cited basis in the charge charges that we receive. I think over half of our charges challenge retaliation as well as underlying discrimination. And an important thing to keep in mind is that even if an underlying charge of discrimination is not meritorious, if an employer penalizes people for objecting to a practice or filing an EEOC charge, that will itself be against the law. And in many so, cases, easier to prove retaliation than the underlying harassment and discrimination. Again, every case is different, but in a lot of respects, you know, when you're dealing with a temporal uh, proximity situation or some obvious causation, to your point, there may not be underlying harassment or discrimination that can be proven, but the retaliation claim is easier to prove. Uh, it, you know, it, every case depends on its facts, but right. temporal proximity is absolutely something that we look at in evaluating whether an adverse action was in fact retaliatory. But it is because I think we want to get out in front of these trends that we've partnered with DOL and NLRB to launch this retaliation initiative, which has several goals. One is cross-training of our agency staff so that staff of each of our agencies can recognize when something may raise a concern under laws enforced by the other agency. It's also to ensure that employers are educated about the standards that apply to retaliation and understand what processes they should have in place in order to preempt it so that it doesn't ripen into an additional allegation of a legal violation. And in that connection, I would say I would refer people to a webinar that was conducted on April 14th with the Solicitor of Labor, the Administrator of the Wage and Hour Division, the General Counsel of the NLRB, the Director of the Office of uh, Occupational Safety and Health. It was a great webinar. Yeah. The Chair of the EEOC, which really identified some promising practices for employers to really get a grip on what retaliation is and to act to prevent it from arising in workplaces, whether it is training in plain language on laws and regulations, providing examples of what constitutes retaliation, ensuring that there's a transparent complaint process that provides avenues for employees to raise concerns and makes clear to them that they will not be subjected to retaliation or doing regular program oversight and monitoring to make sure that the anti-retaliation mechanisms are effective. I think, again, that is kind of a win-win for employers or and employees because ensuring that employees feel that they can safely come forward to raise concerns about discrimination will enable employers to get out in front of those concerns and potentially head off a challenge or an EEOC charge or a legal violation that they can resolve at the front end to create a more inclusive and compliant workplace. Absolutely. Uh, Commissioner Samuels, the vice chair of uh, the EEOC, um, I, I can't tell you how much I uh, appreciate you coming on. We've touched on a whole bunch of issues. I feel, as I always say, I, I feel like we could have 
spend hours on any one of them. Um, but I'd love to have you back on another time if uh, uh, you would be so gracious to do that. And um, again, thank you for such terrific insight today. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. This has been a wonderful conversation. I will look forward to continuing it in the future. As usual, that was terrific. I thought uh, a lot of what she was saying and a lot of what she was procrastin um, uh, prognosticating, excuse me, uh, was extremely interesting. Let's see what happens with some of these Supreme Court decisions, uh, and let's see where we go with some of these issues as we move further into 2023 and uh, lo and behold into a new year again before we get to blink. But that is all we have for today's episode. Thank you so much, as always, for listening and for all of the great feedback that I get. Please keep it coming. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.